Father, again, we thank you for your plan of redemption that you chose to send your only begotten Son for we who are transgressors of the law, for we who are sinners and full of iniquity. And it was on the cross that your Son fully paid for our sin. Father, again, we thank you that he was bruised for our iniquities and he was wounded for our transgressions. That complete substitutionary atonement was made there. That he was rightfully able to proclaim in truth <laughs> that it is finished. That there is nothing more to be paid for our sins. And yet your plan went beyond that to bringing us into your family and we thank you that we can call you Father. That we are made part of your children. Father, again, we thank you for these glorious truths that your spirit has given us life. Your spirit has now given us illumination into your word. We ask that as we look at Isaiah 53, that you might enlighten our minds. Help us to see even more deeply how this passage refers to the Lord Jesus Christ that we would be built up in our faith, that we might go forth from here proclaiming your good news. Lord, we need to be bold in this world. We need to be sharing the gospel. And I pray that as we look at this gospel of Isaiah, that it would just strengthen us to do just that, that we would not keep secret the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that we might be sharing it with those around us, that they might come to faith, that they also might be forgiven. Father, again, we thank you for this marvelous passage and that it's so clearly pointing to your Son. And now we just ask that the, the truths would truly hit our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. As you know, last week we started in Isaiah 52, verse 13. And then for communion, we looked at verses 4 through 6. And we'll finish out the chapter today. Marv Rosenthal, he was the president of Israel, my glory, years ago, and now is Zion, my hope, I guess it is called. Anyways, tells this true story about a friend of his. This is what happened to his friend. Quote, a religious Jewish man was reading from the Hebrew Scriptures, which again is the Old Testament in the Christian Bible, as he had been daily, as was his daily custom for years. On this particular occasion, he came to his reading of Isaiah chapter 52. He, knew, he noticed that at the end of Isaiah 52, there was an asterisk that stated Isaiah 53 was omitted from his Bible. Strange, he thought. He had never seen a chapter left out of the Bible before. On that next Sabbath, while at synagogue, he asked his rabbi why Isaiah 53 was omitted from his Bible. The rabbi was a little taken back and then suggested that it was a difficult text and not to be read by the unlearned. The Jewish man was now even more perplexed. He kept wondering why Isaiah 53 was deliberately omitted from his Bible. He was an observant Jew and unlike most Jewish people, went to the synagogue regularly. What, he wondered, was so important that it had to be kept secret. 
With each passing day, his curiosity grew. He felt that he had to find an answer to his question. One day while in the bookstore, he came across the Hebrew Bible, which he found to his delight included Isaiah 53. He was anxious to get home and read this hidden text. Once home, he read the missing chapter. Then he read it again and again and again. But no matter how many times he read it, it kept coming out the same way each time. He knew he must talk to his rabbi. Rabbi, he inquired, of whom does the prophet Isaiah speak? The rabbi became defensive, but had no satisfying answer that seemed to fit what was written. In the days ahead, the Jewish man kept reading Isaiah 53. He was drawn to it as metal is drawn to a magnet. And the obvious, as distasteful as it seemed, pointed to the name that he had been taught to disdain. Without anyone knowing about it, not even his wife, he bought a Christian New Testament and with some fear and trembling began reading it. A conviction began to grow, which he could no longer deny. Jesus was the one concerning whom the Jewish prophet Isaiah had written. He was the long-awaited Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. With that discovery, he could not contain the joy it brought to his soul. And he received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. It's no wonder they try to keep Isaiah 53 from the Jewish people. And again, as we approach Isaiah 53, and actually we're going to start in Isaiah 52, verse 13, because he says this, verse 13, Behold my servant. And the big question, this is the biggest of all questions, who is the servant? Jewish people would say the servant is Israel. But again, as we've studied, we realize it's Jesus Christ himself. And you can see that in a number number of different ways. One is the pronouns. Notice all the pronouns, like verse 2, and he shall grow up, and and we shall see him, and there is no beauty that we should desire of him, and he is despised. And go to chapter 4, or verse 4, and he has become our, uh, surely he has bore our grief and carried our sorrow. We esteemed him stricken, and you go on and on and on and on and on and on and on, and there's all these pronouns. It's talking about a person, not a nation. That's one of the biggest reasons to say, no, no, this, this is the Messiah. And as I said before, Throughout the centuries, up to the Christian church, first century, Jewish people always looked at Isaiah 53 as the coming Messiah. It was only after the church said, that's Jesus, that the Jewish people then said, no, no, it can't be Jesus, it must be Israel. Again, look at verse 8, it says that the servant was put to death, quote, for the transgressions of my people. So again, it's an individual dying for people. And again, pointing towards Jesus Christ. In verses 4 through 6, we find that the servant is the perfect suffering servant that is willing to die for his sheep. And in verse 6, it says, All we, sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we find the perfection of the servant and the willingness to die for others. And then again, the capstone really is over in Acts chapter 8. When Philip is told to get into the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, he's reading Isaiah 53, comes to, uh, I think it's verse 7, and it, it says specifically that Philip 
proclaim to the Ethiopian eunuch Jesus Christ. So if there was any question as to who is this servant, Acts, excuse me, Acts chapter 8 definitely defines it's Jesus Christ. I remember someone saying one time that this passage is not the most important passage about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament as far as the sacrificial death. And I'm like, really? <laughs> really? It completely points to Jesus Christ. Now, one man said it this way, and I think this is worth understanding. And he basically was saying how important Isaiah 53 is. He says, in the Gospels, the death and resurrection of Christ are seen from the side. It is the horizontal picture painted by men inspired by the Holy Spirit and based on the historical events of his life. Now think about that. The Gospels. Look at Jesus Christ from a horizontal. The Gospel writers watch Christ and then record what they saw. But in Isaiah, the death and resurrection of Christ are seen from above. It is the vertical look, a vertical looking picture painted by God himself. This, that's why this is so important. This is not man looking at the Messiah. This is God the Father saying this is who he is. In a prophetic foreview, it is of more than a passing interest to note that the most intimate description of Christ's death and resurrection is found not in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. No portion of the Bible presents the Savior's passion with more insight, sensitivity, and suffering than Isaiah 53. See, this is the most complete picture of Christ's suffering that we have of, all the, of the entire book, of the entire Bible. And we don't find it in the New Testament. We actually find it in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 53. It's no wonder, again, people want to set that aside. It's no wonder that the entire Jewish nation said, no, 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 that, that can't be of Jesus Christ because he is not the Messiah. No, indeed, he is the Messiah. And this gives the glimpse, this gives the picture. This is a very vivid, now you say, but, but in the New Testament, we see him on the cross, yeah. But this is the picture of the Father saying, this is what was going on at the cross. This was going on uh, with Jesus Christ. So, let's go to chapter 52, verse 13, and just do a quick review. And again, if you go from verse 13 to the end of chapter 53, you have five segments of three verses each in the English Bible. And that's how this is broken down. There's three verses, and then another three verses, another three verses, and another three, and another three. The first set is literally, the servant Messiah will be exalted despite his humiliation. And you see his exaltation in verse 13. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Why? Because God, at the, through the scriptures, wants to just say this right from the beginning. He is my exalted son. People are going to despise him and hate him and mock him and reject him. Just understand, he's my exalted son. But then, verse 14, it shows his suffering. Many were astonished at you, and his visage uh, was marred more than any man. And we looked at that last week. So you see the exaltation of the servant, but also the suffering. But finally, we see the result in verse 15. He shall sprinkle many nations. That's, those are priestly terms. In other words, what he did on the cross 
His suffering was for a purpose, the sprinkling, in other words, the purification. And again, we understand in New Testament terms that he was able to completely forgive our sins because he paid for them on the cross. And so he is exalted despite his humiliation. That's the first three verses. And then we get into chapter 53, verse 1. And we really break this down into, again, the first three is his rejection. By the way, verses 1 through 9 is the servant Messiah was not recognized because of his humiliation. Okay? Not despite his humiliation, but because of it. In other words, because of his humiliation, how can this be the Son of God? That type of thinking. I mean, think about how quickly, you know, Palm Sunday, they're worshiping him, then they're crying for his crucifixion. They rejected, I'm talking the Jewish nation. And you see his rejection in verses 1 through 3. Who has believed our report? I mean, his message is rejected. And then verse 2, it's his person that is rejected. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness when we see him. Uh, there's no beauty that we should desire of him. He, his person, even, you know, I mean, just a carpenter from Nazareth. You know, come on. That's not how the Messiah is supposed to be here. So his rejection of his person. But then also verse 3, his mission, he is despised and rejected by man, men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And what, what did he do? What did they do? We hid, as it were, our faces from him. So verses 1 to 3, you see his rejection of his message, his person, his mission. The idea is he didn't fit the bill. <laughs> That's not what the Jewish people were looking for. Certainly wasn't what the world was looking for. But then, thankfully, verse 4 is there in the text. His redemption. His redemption is the next three verses. Surely, again, notice the pronouns. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, primarily in the text, specifically, what Isaiah is talking about is us as a nation. The Jewish people as a nation. But obviously, this has a far wider scope of all people who would believe on him. He has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrow. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And that's the suffering right there. See, the redemptive work is found in verses 4 through 6. And again, the word wounded and bruised is in the intensive. He was crushed. Every sin that you would ever commit as a believer was placed on him, which caused greater suffering. That's what he's getting at. Sometimes we just think, well, blanket of protection type of thing. No, every sin was paid for. Both past and future. And look at verse 6. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, he died as our substitute. To him was imputed the guilt of our sins, and he was suffering the punishment for each one of those sins. So that the, basically what it was is the father pulled out, poured out the, the full fury of his wrath, and I love this last word, and, and it was totally exhausted on him. Isn't that great? 
Christ took our punishment and the fury of the Father's wrath against our sin was fully exhausted on Jesus Christ. Fully exhausted. You ever been totally exhausted? You know, or exhaust yourself through the breathing. Nothing left. When it came to God, it just, nothing left. There was nothing left. There's no more wrath. There is no more wrath that the Father has for our sin because it was all exhausted on Christ. Now again, the Father chastens his children, like Hebrews 12 says. You ever been chastened by the Lord? Many, many times, right? But understand, what is Hebrews 12 real clear about? Is that he loves us, and that's why he chastens us. He doesn't chasten us because he hates us. He doesn't chasten us as a judge. He chastens us as a father. And, and that's very consistent with Scripture. Why? Because the fury of the judge, God the Father, was completely exhausted on Christ. He doesn't chasten you because he's angry in the sense that he's going to get his pound of flesh. <laughs> it's been totally exhausted on Christ. And now he deals with us if we're in Christ, if we have placed our faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ. He, he uh, deals with us as children. Now again, you may be here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But let me say this. Jesus Christ went to the cross and paid for the sin of sinners. <laughs> and it says very clearly in Scripture, for all those who believe on him, he gave them the right to become children of God. And what you need to do is this recognize your sin, recognize the fact that your sin condemns you before God the Father, and you cry out to God, you cry out to Christ, have mercy on me, and recognize that your sin was already paid for on the cross and receive him. And it kind of goes like this. You reject your sin, which is repentance, and you believe on Christ. There's a dual thing happening. You turn from your sin and you turn to Christ and you receive him. And that's what this verse, verses 4 to 6 is all about. He is the one that took our transgressions. He is the one that took our iniquities. He is the one that took our sin. And he paid for it on the cross. So that's his redemption. Now, let's go to verse 7 because now this is a little bit new See, this, remember, this is not a horizontal view. This is a vertical view. This is God showing us the Son, and, and, which is the servant. You know, behold my servant. And he wants to show us his resignation, his passivity, as it were. In other words, did Jesus Christ go to the cross kicking and screaming? What was his heart like? What was he like going to the cross, on the cross, dying being buried. In verses 7 through 9, God the Father gives us the glimpse. Verse 7, he was oppressed. That means roughly treated. Pressure. It's uh, like a slave master term. He was oppressed. He was, in other words, he was passive in this process. He was, at, by the way, let me say it this way. He was actively obedient through his entire life. But when it came to the cross, he, was, he allowed what God wanted to happen to happen. Okay? 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted. In other words, he suffered submissively. This idea was afflicted. The idea is uh, voluntarily did this. Yet he opened not his mouth and he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its earer, shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By the way, the open not his mouth means that he wasn't trying to defend himself. He did open his mouth. He did respond to a couple questions, but he wasn't trying to, uh, you know, no, you got the wrong man or any of that. He wasn't trying to defend himself that way. He was passive in the process. He knew that he was going to be the sacrifice for us. That was the whole plan. That's the whole reason he came. That's why he was born. In fact, you see this open not his mouth many times. <clears throat> like, see, before, see he, was, he had actually six different times where he was before different people. He was before Annas and then Caiaphas. Then he was the Jewish trial back. And then he was before Pilate, then Herod, and then Pilate. And notice some of the phrases. I'll just read them for you. Before Caiaphas, it says, Mark 14, and he kept silent. And then um, before Pilate, it says he answered nothing. And then before Herod in Luke 23, it says he answered nothing. And then before Pilate again in John 19, it says, where, where are you from? And Jesus gave no answer. <laughs> now he did answer, uh, I forget who, I guess it was a Sanhedrin in Luke 22. It says, are you the son of God? And he said, yes, I am. No more. In other words, I'm not going to try to defend myself. If you ask me a question, I'll tell you the answer, but I'm not going to try to, you know, make any more. He, he, he just resigned himself to the Father's will. By the way, this is a huge lesson for us. I think sometimes we fight and scream and kick and, you know, and listen, we're in our enemy territory. We are in, we are in the Father's hands. He, whatever happens in your life is Father-filtered. We've already said that it's not about the wrath of God, it's about the love of God in our life. And yet, the world sometimes abuses us, and sometimes we don't act like Christ. We try to defend our... I'm not saying not to defend the gospel, but sometimes we try to defend ourselves. Sometimes in, in ways that is ungodly. And yet here, the Father wants us to really get a glimpse of his Son. And he was... He just allowed the process to happen. Look at verse 7, his, his sacrifice. Now again, these are all aspects of his passivity, his resignation, if you want to use our term. You know, he just resigned himself very biblically to what God wanted. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And think about the little lamb. Didn't know what he was. He just went to be the sacrifice. And then John the Baptist called Christ the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as he went to the cross... He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Why? Because the, Peter says the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. If he had been, if he had fought, he would have been a sinner. And he was perfect, so he allowed the process. Look at also his suffering in verse 8. He was taken from prison. That's intensive. That's a very intensive term. In other words, he was manhandled and mocked and scourged and beat and pulled and crowned and, and just... And, and notice this, and from justice. Not only from prison, but from justice. And I think what Isaiah is referring to, God wanted known, is that the entire trial 
you know, going before the, you know, the, the priest and the high priest and the Sanhedrin and then to Pilate and Herod and Pilate. And he just wanted to know all that, that that was all illegitimate. In other words, it was, you know, they were doing it against the law at night by, um, you know, quick means. And in other words, it was a rigged trial. Um, there was nothing of justice when they condemned Christ. It wasn't because he was truly condemnable. So he was taken, manhandled. No true justice was given because if true justice had been given, he wouldn't have been scourged and hung. And then look at verse, the second part of verse 8. His death, for he was cut off from the land of the living. By the way, that's the first time we actually see death. Everything else is, you know, when it says uh, he was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities, like in verse 5, we know he died. But here's the first time in this process that now, you know, it's a violent death. He was cut off. That's always, always means violent death. He was cut off. And if you go back through, you know, you see all the suffering, but you don't see his final death. You know, verse 14, he was marred more than any man. Verse 3, despised, rejected, born of grief, sorrow, smitten, afflicted, wounded, bruised. But now we find out he dies. And he doesn't just die, he dies a violent death, cut off from the land of the living. Because again, that's, that always means something very violent, ending in death. Do you see what God wants us to do? This is God, the Father. I want you to see my son. I want you to see how obedient he was to the point of death, even death on the cross. I want you to understand the perfect servant here. So I'm going like this. You're saying, why are you holding your hands like, you know, it's like a magnifying glass for us to look down and say, oh, now we start understanding what's going on in the heart of Jesus. But again, why did he have to die? He didn't die for his own sins. He died for ours. Verse 8, D, the, second, the last part of verse, uh, the last part of uh, verse, uh, the last part of 8 <laughs> For the transgressions of my people. Again, talking about Israel, but also bigger scope, us. He was stricken. He was stricken. Like uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made Jesus, him, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He, he died for us. So again, this is all talking about you know, you know, because as I started breaking this down, it, it didn't fall into a really good outline necessarily. All, but all he's really saying is, look, this is how Jesus Christ approached it. He was just resigned to what the will of the Father was. And then notice verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked. This is talking about his enemies' desires. Remember, they hated Christ. They had a, you know, they had a bounty on him. That's where Judas's the money came and all that. And they made the grave with the wicked. In other words, he was crucified between two sinners, two thieves. No, what, what did they normally do with a, uh, a criminal? Broke their legs, took them down, threw them on the, uh, in the garbage heap. You know, the whole point was you never gave them a proper burial. Just something that was humiliating. Sometimes a potter's field. You know, but the point is, is that you took a criminal and you would never give them a proper burial. That was part of being a criminal. And that was, by the way, 
they're, that's what, that's what uh, the high priest, that's what the Jews wanted to do. They just wanted to take Jesus and throw him on the, on the, on the heap. But now the father steps in, but with the rich at his death. See, the enemy's desire was give him a criminal's burial. But that wasn't the father's. Because it says in Matthew 27, he was buried in a borrowed tomb of a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself was also one of Jesus' disciples. In a new tomb. I love that. See, this is the point. Once he said, it is finished, and atonement had been made, his work had been done. Now think about this. He had been totally humiliated to the point of, it is finished. And at that point, the father says, no more. You don't humiliate my son anymore. And so, that last part of verse 9, but with the rich at his death, is a huge transition. You've done enough. The next time you see him, he's going to be risen. And then he's gone to heaven. And the next time you see him after that is when he comes back on the, on the white horse. Because there's no more humiliation for my son. Why all this? Because the last part of verse 9, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, goes back to talking about the, 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 the son's perfection. There's no, there was no... By the way, when he says no deceit in his mouth, remember what Matthew says? Out of the mouth... For what comes out of the mouth defiles a man because it comes from the heart. See, the idea is this in Scripture. What comes out of the mouth is from the heart. And when he says in the Scriptures here that no deceit, he's saying, hey, because what he was saying was no deceit, man, his heart was pure. He was just looking at his perfection. He wants to, and and by the way, as you see this, you keep seeing these reoccurring themes. Yes, the the suffering servant is going to be exalted, but the suffering servant is perfect. And you keep seeing that theme over and over. He's perfect, he's perfect, he's perfect. He didn't die for his own sin, he died for others. Well, let's go to the last three verses, verses 10 through 12. And this is the last major, um, I'll give you one major uh, break again major um, theme. It's the servant Messiah will be exalted precisely because of his humiliation. Now isn't this strange, verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Doesn't that sound strange to you? It pleased the Father, because the Lord there is Jehovah, the Father. It pleased the Lord to bruise him and he was put, he has put him to grief. I just find that so, in other words, that word please means delighted. It delighted the Lord to bruise his son. I can't ever imagine me wanting, having any delight in seeing my son suffer, any of my kids. And yet for here, it pleased the father to bruise him. Now again, we understand the reason. By the way, let me just throw out a question. Who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Well, John 10 says, Jesus himself speaking, I lay down my life that I might take it again. So in reality, nobody, nobody in the sense that no one could unless Jesus allowed it. All right, that's what I'm trying to say. 
It says in Acts 2, verse 23, Peter speaking to the Jews, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and have put him to death, speaking of Christ. You could say this, the Jews killed him. But the verse, the part before that verse says this, him, talking about God the Father, being, excuse me, Jesus Christ, being delivered by the by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. So you might say, well, who killed Christ? Well, obviously it was the purpose of God that Jesus Christ would come to die for the sins of many. Who killed Jesus? Well, the Jews did. Well, Christ laid his life down. Well, it was all part of the Father's plan. That's why he said in verse 4, smitten by God. And verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why did it please the Father to crush the Son? Because through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, the Father could bring many sons to glory, as Hebrew talks about. So it pleased the Lord to do that. This was, again, all part of the plan. I can't imagine how hard. I mean, you know, you can't even, it's just beyond thought. But it did please the Father. What I want to end with in verses, uh, the last part of verse 10 through 12, are six results of this sacrifice. Six things. And the first is this. He is victorious through the resurrection. Because notice uh, verse 10, the third part of it. It says, and he shall see his seed. Now how can you see your seed? That's specifically talking about the resurrection. See, we laid him and he was separated from the land of the living. All right, the, the Savior's dead. The substitute is dead. In fact, you might even think this. This was the Jewish people. Okay, so the Messiah died. Some, and you might say, okay, so his sacrifice was somehow helped us. But now God says, uh-oh, and he shall see his seed. He, he's dead, but he's going to be alive. And that's exactly what you see. Died three days, resurrected. By the way, in the Greco-Roman thinking, they knew, they had this idea that after life, I mean, after you died, there would be life. But they did not understand the resurrection. See, they didn't say that you were raised physically with a body. They just said, well, there's just this spirit out there kind of floating around and and you will continue to uh, exist. This is a totally new concept that, that someone dies and that they're life, but that they have a body. Because it didn't just say that, it says they will see. Well, how do you see? You see with a body. You see with an eye. So the first result of the obedient suffering of our Savior, the atoning death of our Savior, was that the sacrifice was acceptable, and because it was acceptable, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. See, because he rose, we are absolutely assured of one very real thing, and that is our sins can be forgiven as we place our trust in Christ, uh, place our hope and trust in Christ. It is triumphant. In fact, Psalm 16 says this, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Why? Because the Father accepted the sacrifice and raised the Son, and His resurrection proves that we can be forgiven. So the first thing is victorious through resurrection. Number two, it's the second part of verse 10, He shall see His seed. In other words, He shall have many spiritual children. The seed there is referring to believers. John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to what? Become what? Children. Children of God. What is the result of the obedient servant 
sacrifice himself, he will have children, spiritual children. That's why Jesus said after the death and after being raised from the dead, he said, go to my brethren. Now, he had never said that to us. He had never said that to the disciples. He had said, now, you are my servants and you are my friends. But after the resurrection, he said, now, go to my brethren, family, children. How about number three? Last part of verse 10. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The idea is there, he, he will fully accomplish the Father's will. In other words, the Father, again, like that microscope, vertical look, and he's saying, listen, I want you to understand that what the Son did on the cross was fully accomplished. He fully accomplished the Father's purpose. I find that interesting, fully accomplished. I don't want to accomplish hardly anything fully. How many of you have like unfinished tasks? And yet when Jesus hung on the cross, at the very end, he said, it is finished. It is complete. And you say, well, how do you get that? In other words, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It is complete. And then actually carrying on with that, verse number four, he finished his work of redemption. This is like, a, uh, one author said, this is like the crescendo of the Lord, and now actually the Lord is going to speak for himself about his righteous servant. Verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and shall be satisfied. That's not talking about the Father, that's talking about the Son. The Son is going to see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And the idea of satisfied there again is finished. See, it accomplished the Father's will, and when he, was eight, when he finally died, he said, it is finished, it is complete. It's, there's nothing else to be added. By the way, these are truths that we take so for granted as Christians, don't we? Well, of course. He, no, no, this, this is like new. Wait a second. It is complete. Look at number five. He is able to declare many righteous. Second part of verse 11. By his knowledge... My righteous servant, now this is God the Father speaking. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. So the Father is saying, because of what my righteous servant did, he is able to declare many righteous. Romans 4 says, Jesus was raised for our justification. So his atoning work on the cross. Now let me just review these. Because he went to the cross because he was willing to suffer for sins as the obedient servant. He was victorious through resurrection. He has many spiritual children. He fully accomplished the Father's will. He finished his work of redemption, and therefore he is able to declare many to be righteous. And I use the word many because that's how the text says, justify many. He doesn't justify all. By the way, that is uh, universalism, where it says, well, in the end, everybody's going to get saved. No, not every, no, not in the end. Everyone will not get saved. There is a hell and there is a heaven. There is those who will be under the wrath of God forever in hell and there are those who will have uh, peace and joy with the Father in heaven. And he'll justify many. By the way, that word justify means to be declared righteous. He is able to declare many to be righteous. And again, that's at salvation. 
Why? How can he do that? How can he justify many? Well, he answers in the next part of the verse. For he shall bear their iniquities. He's the one that's bearing their iniquities. So the father is speaking. He's saying, listen, these are the things that have happened because my suffering servant, my perfect servant, went to the cross. And then finally, number six, the last result is he gained incontestable or irrefutable victory and universal dominion. Verse 12, therefore I will, this is the the Father speaking, I will divide him, being Christ, by the way, that's the intensive, the PL in Hebrew, the intensive, I will divide to him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's also intensive. What is he getting at? See, the judgment was given to the Son through the Father, and now the Father is saying, because he was my perfect servant, yes, he humbled himself and went to the cross. I'm going to divide to him it's like a general saying, listen, he gets, he gets the spoils. But you know what's great is the second part. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Who's he referring to there? Us. See, we get the rewards at the end. Sometimes you think, well, because I was a good Christian. No, no, you get the rewards at the end because your Savior went to the cross. And it came from the Father. And, he, and our Savior is a good shepherd, very generous and willing to divide the spoil. That's why Philippians 2 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. See, the Father loves to exalt his servants, especially his, his only begotten Son. So those are the six things that you find because the Savior went to the cross. Now, you would think it should, should say period, okay? At the end of, ver, with the strong. But like any proud father, and we have some very proud fathers in here, and sometimes when you see a really proud father, you know, they just always want to talk about their son. You know, you go into the house and, oh, let me show what, you know, what my kid did, you know, and you have all these trophies or whatever like this. Well, think about the father as being a very, very, and I mean the word proud in the right sense, obviously. The proud father. See, I would have put a period at the end, he, and therefore he dis, d, uh, divides the spoil with the strong. No, no. The Father wants to make one final point, and it's really a summary of everything that we've been studying. Why? Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Do you see what God's doing? Let me tell you about my son one more time. Let me tell you about what he did for you one more time. So he just summarizes I just find that so interesting. By the way, the intercession there is mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man, what? The man Christ Jesus, Timothy tells us. See, he is the proud father, and like I said, the last part, especially of Isaiah 53, is again the father saying, okay, these are the things that happened because my son was obedient and faithful to suffer for you. If you go through the whole thing of Isaiah, it's that vertical look. I want you to get it. It's the vertical look. came across an interesting story. It comes from the times when England and France were at war. And they had a draft, just like we used to. And 
the French were being called into service to follow after Napoleon. On one occasion, the authorities came to a certain man and told him he was among those who had been chosen to go and fight for Napoleon. He refused to go, saying, I was, I was shot and killed two years ago. At first, the officials questioned his sanity, but he insisted that this was indeed the case. He claimed that the military records would show that he had been killed in action. How can this be? They questioned you are alive now. He explained that when his name first came up, a close friend said to him this, you have a large family. I have no family. You're married. I am not. Nobody's dependent on me. I'll take your name and your address and go in your place. And that is indeed what the record showed. This rather unusual case was referred to Napoleon Bonaparte, who decided that a country had no legal claim on that man. He was free. He had died in the person of another. And that's exactly what happened with us, with Jesus Christ on the cross. Romans 6 is very clear, that we were crucified with him. We died in the person of another. So when Satan comes and tries to accuse the brethren and even our own consciences tries to accuse us. No, no. That sin was placed on the cross. I died in the place of another. That's what we mean by he is our Savior. Everything that should have been done to us, the wrath of God because of our sin, was already placed on him. He was our substitute. And the only question today is this. Is he your substitute? Have you put your faith and trust in him has he forgiven your sins because he died for your sins on the cross? Did you do that? And if you have, then I would, I just, I just pray that as we sing right now, that you would remember that you di died in the place, someone else died in the place of you. And so as we come together and, and praise Jesus Christ, it should, <laughs> yes, that's right. I should be in hell, but he took my hell so I could have the privilege of being able to enjoy his heaven. Let's stand as we sing. I was thinking, how does God most want us to remember Jesus Christ? And so I said, well, let's go to Revelation and see how he is most often represented. And at first I thought, well, the lion from the tribe of Judah, right? Coming back as the conquering king. Actually, in Revelation, that only appears once. The lion. You know what appears the most? 30 times Jesus is referred to as the Lamb. And the first one is in 5 verse 6 where it says, a lamb standing as, it, as if slain. That's how we remember Jesus Christ. Oh yes, we remember him as the King of Kings and all those other things. But you know what needs to be impressed upon our minds? He's the Lamb that was led to the slaughter. He was the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is our Lamb. And He comes back as the Lamb. Oh, not just meek, <laughs> with power and strength, but never forget the sacrifice that He did on your behalf. Right? Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You for these reminders. Thank You for this clearest glimpse as we looked at Isaiah 53. And Father, we now ask that as we go through this especially this season, Resurrection Sunday, and seeing family and friends and, 
and all the good times, Lord, may our minds keep coming back to Christ as the Lamb, the one who was slain for us. Father, I pray that we would be bold to be able to proclaim the truth, to share the gospel so that others might come to know the Lamb. Father, we ask that you would give us opportunity and give us boldness. Father, again, we thank you for these truths and may they continue to be meditated on by us, that we not, we not forget them, but they would grow us, they would change us, they would transform us so that we might become more like the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen, amen.